Hello, powerful people. Welcome back to the Power at Work blog. I'm Seth Harris. I'm a senior fellow at the Burn Center for Social Change. So delighted to have you back here. And, and we've got, a, I think, a really fascinating and I, I think you might find troubling uh, blogcast for you today. Uh, today, the, the day you're watching this, it's uh, July 27th, which is National Whistleblower Day. Um, to try to draw attention to the efforts by uh, whistleblowers around the country and their attorneys and advocates like some of those you're going to meet today um, to shine a light on this important issue of worker power uh, in our society. Um, uh, whistleblowing is, is very much a story about worker power. Uh, it's about workers' ability to, to call on the government, to intervene when an employer uses their power to silence them, often when the worker is trying to disclose illegal or unethical or irresponsible, unsafe behavior. So it's a story of worker voice in the workplace when workers are trying to disclose information that you and I as citizens want to have disclosed. Now, I want to acknowledge that that's a little bit different from what we typically do on this blog. We're very much focused on worker power through collective action, often through unions. Um, this is a different story. This is workers calling on the power of the government to intervene, to give them power when an employer is taking action against them. Sometimes a government employer, sometimes a private sector employer. You know, that we talk about being a nation of laws. This is one of those areas where as a nation of laws and a society that's committed to fairness, we really need to ensure that workers have the power that they need in order to be able to protect themselves when they face retaliation from an employer. So we, we think today's podcast, today's blogcast is, is really, really, really important. Uh, it's, even though it's from a somewhat uh, different perspective. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about the terrific people that you're going to meet today, the courageous people that you're going to meet today, including two alums of Northeastern University's School of Law. We're always delighted to lift up the terrific work of our colleagues at Northeastern. You all have met, those of you who are regular viewers of these blogcasts have met Alicia Modestino, who's a, just a fantastic professor of economics uh, at Northeastern. Uh, if you're a reader of the blog, you've read the work of uh, Professor Kimberly Lucas from the Public Policy School. She wrote about retirement savings for early educators, uh, another uh, terrific progressive attorney, uh, a progressive uh, academic, not attorney, academic. Not everybody has to be an attorney, even though a lot of the people you're going to meet today are. Um, she wrote about this important issue of how to improve uh, early education for kids by improving retirement savings for early educators. So go read uh, Kim's post. Uh, watch Alicia lead our discussion for the first Friday in uh, uh, in August, uh, which we call Numbers Day. It's when the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases its jobs on employment and wages report, and we comment on it. You're going to miss me uh, in the next one. I'll be uh, vacationing with my family. But today's guests are every bit as uh, impressive, and a couple of them are Northeastern alums. Uh, you'll meet Siri Nelson, who is the executive director of the National Whistleblower Center and an adjunct professor at Northeastern University School of Law, teaching whistleblowing 
law. She was an associate attorney and policy counsel at Cone Cone and Calipinto, which is the nation's leading whistleblower law firm. Uh, and she worked closely with all kinds of of whistleblowers and legislators and regulators. And she's been published in a, in a number of places. And uh, she's now an editor and legislative correspondent at Whistleblower Network News. You'll meet Steve Cohn, uh, one of the Cones in Cone Cone in Calipinto. Steve is one of the, the nation's really top uh, whistleblower attorneys. He's a founding director of the National Whistleblower Center. Uh, he's written eight books, eight books on whistleblowing law. And he is still practicing whistleblower law. He's chairman of the board of the National Whistleblower Center. Um, you'll meet Dr. Tony Savage, who is a whistleblower. Uh, she uh, she's going to tell her story, and I and I think, as I said at the top, you're going to find it disturbing. Uh, she was a contracting officer for the Army Corps of Engineers in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, she had always won accolades for her integrity and her outstanding job performance, and then she reported on a pattern and practice of illegal contracting uh, behavior. And uh, boy, did the, the the bricks come tumbling down on her head. Uh, her situation changed for the worse. Uh, and she ended up in a protracted battle over uh, her whistleblower status. Um, and we have Janet, uh, we have Jane Turner, not Janet, Jane Turner, uh, who also is whistleblower, worked for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, actually was a whistleblower twice. Uh, so courageous. Uh, she, she blew the whistle on some irresponsible and in some cases unethical and illegal practices within the FBI uh, regarding a program that she was running in North Dakota uh, with uh, some Indian tribes um, and, you know, folks taking advantage of some deeply disadvantaged folks, children in some cases. Um, and, uh, and Jane blew the whistle on them. And uh, 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 again, uh, faced unbelievable retaliation, basically had all of her job responsibilities taken away. You'll hear her story. You don't need me to, to tell you the story. Um, and then she blew the whistle again. Um, she was involved in an investigation around the events surrounding 9-11, the terrorist attacks of 9-11, where people were stealing property, private property and evidence from the 9-11 site at Ground Zero uh, in New York City, eight blocks from where I used to teach law. And, uh, and again, she suffered unbelievable retaliation and ultimately had to retire. Um, so you'll hear their stories. Uh, we recorded those interviews on Monday, July 24th. Um, I'm talking to you Wednesday morning, Wednesday, July 26th, tomorrow the 27th, when you're going to be watching this, is National Whistleblower Day. But I, I did want to comment on some breaking labor news. It actually broke yesterday. It's not breaking right now, but important labor news. Uh, and that is that the, uh, the Teamsters and the United Parcel Service, UPS, have a tentative agreement. Uh, there was uh, talk for a long time about there being a strike. They were very hard negotiations. The parties were battling over things like a two-tiered employment system, the, the hated 22-4 two-tiered employment system where newer workers got lesser benefits and lesser wages than longer tenured workers, about issues like forced overtime, you know, workers being exposed to heat hazards, um, and also, you know, wage and pension issues, always an important issue, the money issues, the economic issues. 
And uh, yesterday, the Teamsters and the and UPS announced that they had a tentative agreement. Now, that agreement has to be ratified by the Teamsters UPS membership. There's 325, 330, 340,000 of them, so it may take a little while. Um, but let me just say this is another uh, piece of evidence that collective bargaining works. And most importantly, the union representation works. Um, you don't even have to ask yourself very hard uh, or question yourself very hard about would the workers at UPS be getting the things that they are getting out of this collective bargaining agreement if they didn't have a union? The answer is definitely not. Uh, the Teamsters representation uh, and aggressive bargaining tactics, and let me say some, I thought, creative tactics like practice picketing, practice striking, getting ready in the event that uh, they were not able to reach an agreement with UPS and doing that in a very, very public, high-profile way and getting statements of support from politicians and other unions. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it was it was very effective stuff. And now they have a tentative agreement. Now, I have seen on social media that there is some unhappiness among some particularly part-time members uh, of the Teamsters at UPS or part-time UPS workers who are members of the Teamsters. Uh, they were hoping for a bigger pay increase, I believe, is one of the concerns. But I, I don't want to speak for them. I'll let them speak for themselves. Um, my bet is that the agreement will be ratified because it the, the Teamsters just made an immense amount of progress. I mean, they dealt with some issues that have been naughty, or as they say in Northeastern University's hometown of Boston, wicked uh, problems for a long time. There was real unhappiness among the membership with respect to that two-tiered system, but also with respect to wages. And, you know, imagine driving around Phoenix, Arizona in summer in an unair conditioned vehicle, right? Imagine driving around Miami, Florida in an unair conditioned vehicle in August. What that must that be like, you know, South Texas, what must that be like? Um, and now they're going to get air conditioning and there'll be interim measures taken until they can get trucks that have air conditioning in them. That is a meaningful improvement in the quality of those workers' lives achieved at the bargaining table, achieved because they had a union and it was a strategic and very aggressive union at that. Um, collective bargaining works. Union representation works. And we've had evidence of that throughout. Now, are there strikes? Of course there are strikes. That doesn't mean collective bargaining has failed. Sometimes the parties have to use economic weapons to change the other guy's mind, right? Sometimes they have to lean on you to get you to change your position. And sometimes they lean on you and you don't change your position and they have to change their position. Sometimes members are really, really angry and then they strike and they realize maybe they weren't that angry and they want to go for the deal that was on the table or maybe a little bit better. Um, you know, there's lots and lots of permutations, but a strike is not a failure. A strike is part of the process. It's not pretty, but democracy is not always pretty. And this is workplace democracy. So uh, I've been talking to the media a lot about this lately, talking to reporters, talking on television about these issues. Some of those clips, all the television clips are available on the Power at Work blog. I encourage you to take a look at those. But um, that's a very, very big piece of news uh, that the UPS, uh, UPS and the Teamsters have, have, have cut a deal. So I'm going to stop talking about other stuff. And I really, really want you to hear this whistleblowers uh, broadcast. It's so important. So you're going to hear from Siri Nelson, Steve Cohn, Tony Savage, and Jane Turner for National Whistleblowers Day. Enjoy it. 
So let me start by saying thank you to all of you uh, for joining today. And uh, I, I guess happy National Whistleblower Day. Is it a happy day? I guess it, I think it is, at least for the people who are participating today. So Steve, I wanna, I wanna start with you um, because you've dedicated your life to the service of, of whistleblowers. Uh, but when I, you, I think you and I are roughly contemporaries and I don't mean to call you old by saying that, but when, <laughs> when I attended law school, there was no course in whistleblower law. And I don't know if you had the same experience. So how and why did you get involved in whistleblower law? What was it that attracted you to it? And how did you even find out about it? Well, it's funny you say that, but in 1982, I did my first co-op at Northeastern and a, at a legal program. And they said I was gonna represent and help whistleblowers. And my comment was, What's that? And uh, then ever since, that's what I've been doing my entire legal career. But in the old days, there were no good whistleblower laws. What I do today does not resemble what occurred 30, 40 years ago. I don't use any of the same laws. Things have developed, and they've really developed in a way that whistleblowing has grown, and it's tremendously rewarding. So you say, well, why did I stick with it? Number one are the clients. Whatever the stereotypes are, they're wrong. They're the most loyal, the smartest, the most incredible people I've had the honor to meet. I think back to it all the time, the whistleblowers I've been able to represent. You know, some people like to portray them as disgruntled or whatever. It's just absolutely not true. You're looking at people who are ethical, who do the right thing, and, and you really want them on your team. So that's number one. Number two is I do like creative things, and we were able to build the law out. You know, work with Congress, work with agencies, uh, work with the courts, fight like hell to get better laws enacted. So where else can you do that? Where else can you sit and engage to help people who are really contributing to society in major ways. I mean, this is a, just turned out to be just an incredible journey. So Siri, what, what about you? Um, you're also a Northeastern Law School alum. Maybe Steve, I don't know, but maybe Steve was your professor, but you also have <laughs> dedicated your career to a whistleblower law. What was it that attracted you to working in this field? Yeah, I'm a Northeastern School of Law alum, class of 2019. Hello, everyone. Um, and I was able to take Stephen Cohn's class, Whistleblower Law, which I now teach with him as an adjunct professor. So that's a really fun and creative experience. We definitely give the students the run for their money in that course. Um, and what attracted me to the subject matter was seeking an avenue for individuals to take action and hold corporations accountable. And that's really what keeps me in this area. When I see the courageous individuals who are standing up against these huge machines, whether they're the government or um, in the private sector all around the world. And so um, working with Steve, we definitely get to spread that message. So I love it. I love that image of standing up with your clients against big 
entities, big corporate entities, particularly, and and speaking truth to power. I love that image of whistleblowing law. So, Steve, I want to pick up on something else that you said. So back when I was the, the deputy secretary of labor, I oversaw the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which, as you know, over time has also become the whistleblower enforcement organization inside the federal government there when i was there and i don't know what the number is now but the number when i was there was something like 22 whistleblower laws were assigned to osha for enforcement purposes not merely the osh act the occupational safety and health act but uh you know sarbanes oxley and uh the railroad uh, whistleblower law i mean just a long long list of laws and my sense is that OSHA, my, I always felt that OSHA had gotten stuck with this gigantic, complex, multi-statute task and that they really struggled to keep up with it. And so you talked about how the law has developed. Has it, has it developed for the better? And do, do whistle, what does the whistleblower bar have a handle on this proliferation of laws in this area? Well, first off, the whistleblower bar, be it that it is, does not. As you said, there's many laws, many procedures, and a lot of law firms and even labor lawyers might do one or two cases. But for those law firms to have an expertise across the board is, is like maybe two firms that in the whole country that could conquer that. But it's funny you mentioned that, you know, your role in OSHA, but it actually goes all the way back to the 80s when the best corporate whistleblower law was the Atomic Energy Act. And it wasn't that good, but the judges were getting receptive at the Office of Administrative Law Judges. The investigators, be it from first wage an hour, then OSHA, were becoming interested in the cases and, and they were developing an expertise. Whereas if you went to federal court, they often never heard of a whistleblower would have one case where these judges were developing an expertise and also giving us the time to present a case. Like, for example, in one case, they, the judge gave us three weeks just to present our damages. I mean, no federal judge is going to do that. It's like very unheard of. Uh, so as we amended different laws, we recommended to Congress to stick it with the Department of Labor. So that's why you got so many, because labor just did a better job than others. And then in terms of the statutes, we moved, it started with a 30-day statute of limitations. Now they all have at least 180 days. They started with no right to federal court. Now all the new laws let you either do labor or go into federal court. They changed the burdens of proof to make them more favorable to employees. So the whistleblower laws are years ahead of the OSHA retaliation law, which is considered backwards and absolutely unworkable because our, the, the whistleblower laws let you get into court, private right of action, decent damages, and a good burden. So that's how they developed on the retaliation side. But the big development was whistleblower reward getting a monetary reward and and just very briefly that shifts the case from how much did you suffer the, the more you suffer the more the department of labor will award you hmm. to how 
good is your evidence? Can you find the white collar crooks guilty? And the better your evidence, the bigger the prosecution, the better your reward. And now you can obtain compensation even if you never suffer any retaliation. Hmm. Uh, so Siri, help us to understand sort of the typical or basic whistleblower case. Help us to understand, you know, if, if, a, if the people that you're advocating for, the people that Stephen is representing, that you represented, what, what, what kind of circumstances do they find themselves in? We're going to hear from, from Jane and Tony in just a second about their particular circumstances, but give us the basics of a whistleblower case. Why does someone come to a lawyer and say, gosh, I really, I need help? Yeah, uh, I just want to start by saying that, you know, Jane Turner and Tony Savage are exemplary whistleblowers. So what you're going to hear from them is definitely a higher standard than what the standard whistleblower case looks like. And some of the things that really differentiate these two incredible people from other whistleblowers is their attention to detail, the quality of evidence they've been able to provide in their whistleblower cases, their credibility and their ability to communicate effectively with the enforcement agents that they've worked with and, and bringing their case forward and also, you know, finding great counsel. So the typical whistleblower is stressed out, is afraid, might not have evidence, might be afraid of collecting evidence, but believes that something's wrong at their workplace, has a feeling that someone is up to no good, and may have observed things that give root to that feeling. The typical whistleblower has no idea where to start and may go to their local attorney, divorce attorney, personal injury attorney, just anybody who they think might help. They may go to the media or they may go to their friends. Oftentimes they'll go to their supervisor and get retaliated against before anybody hears about their claims. And the path forward for them is very confusing. So that's the typical whistleblower. And that is why National Whistleblower Center does what we do. We try to create a clearer path for the typical whistleblower to figure out how to get counsel, what to consider when they're thinking about blowing the whistle because they've seen something concerning and what rights are available to them even if they don't feel comfortable reaching out to an attorney. Hmm. And, uh, and what, what is it that the whistleblower is seeking, right? So is it that they have faced some kind of retaliation for the information they brought forward or are they seeking monetary damages? Are they seeking to punish somebody? What, when they're going to the court, what is the relief that they want? Well, whistleblowers are seeking justice and they're usually seeking public protection. So the most ardent whistleblowers are those that see activity that is of concern to public health and well-being and are trying to report. They genuinely believe that it's worth the sacrifice of their well-being and their everyday sanity to speak up about this. So whether it be a financial um, sort of misconduct that's depriving people of their fair um, shake in business, whether it be a health or safety concern, like the Nuclear Regulatory Commission concerns that NWC started off with, or be an environmental concern, a public safety and national security concern. So, I mean, these are people who really think that whatever it is that they have to speak up about is worth losing everything for. 
And there's a huge, huge misconception about self-interest, having a vendetta, or any other alternative motivations, which is driven by those who are likely to be blown the whistle on in order to preemptively silence anyone who would have the courage to speak up. These are people who are doing things for the exact right reason, and that's why they deserve to be protected and rewarded. Great. And, and Stephen, I, I want to... I just want to interject the no, second. I've represented whistleblowers for about 40 years. I don't think... I've never had one case where the primary or even a motive of the whistleblower was like revenge or to get even. They all start with some form of serious concern, financial, health and safety, et cetera. And those stereotypes are just wrong. Well, so let me, you know what? I see Jane is nodding her head. And so we have actual whistleblowers here with us. So you've talked about it, Stephen, you and Siri have talked about it at sort of a high level, a little bit abstract. That was the question that I asked. So let's get into some specifics. So Jane, let me let me start with you, or should I say Agent Turner? Let's start with you. You're an agent with the uh, with the FBI, and you have blown the whistle on the uh, on the FBI at least twice. Maybe you've done it more than that. I'm aware of of, of two times. One was a case in North Dakota uh, involving a program that you ran with tribes up there. Uh, that was focused on uh, women and children. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that. But also, you were involved in a 9-11 case, which is very close to my heart. I was I was actually down in that neighborhood on that horrible, horrible, horrible day. I was eight, uh, eight blocks away. So that, that really resonates with me. So t- take us through the the facts of what happened in the North Dakota case, and then take us through the facts of what happened in the 9-11 case in as much detail as you think we need to know in order to understand the story and why you became a whistleblower. Uh, Seth, it's a, it's a very interesting journey. And of course, like you said, I was a senior resident agent for the FBI up in North Dakota. I was considered an expert in crimes against children taught at a national level and to give you the Reader's Digest excerpt of this case, um, I had fellow agents who were covering up crimes against children as car accidents. I brought mm. it to the attention of the Minneapolis division because I was an expert in the field. And uh, who else but I could speak as to uh, this awful thing that was taking place up there? There was We were not considering the clients that we were serving on the tribes, as you uh, say. So I blew the whistle on that, went all the way up, all the way up to headquarters in Washington, D.C., and all the way back down. And back then, 25 years ago, you know, the stigma of being a whistleblower, you know, there was terms thrown around like muckraker and snitch and rat, tattletale, leaker skunk at the picnic, Senator Grassley's favorite expression. Mm. And of course, the Bureau enfolds their personnel and the whole concept I was taught from the first day at the academy, FBI Academy, was protect the Bureau. When I blew the whistle, I obviously stepped outside that circle. And um, they made sure that I was put outside my tribe, the FBI. So 
25 years ago, Stephen Cohn joined me on that journey because I had gone all the way up, all the way down. They had severely retaliated against me, told me I was coming down to into the Minneapolis office in order to take over the whole Crimes Against Children uh, program, and it was a lie. Uh, once I got down there, I was uh, didn't even have a desk, had no cases assigned. The things that happen to whistleblowers um, that are very common, such as mobbing, um, reducing your pay or hours of work, demoting you, unwarranted disciplinary action, denying a promotion, threats or intimidation, reassignment, denying work benefits, all of those, Seth, happened to me. Those mm. are common across the spectrum. So um, it really caused for me moral and ethical dissonance. And I was very lucky I got Stephen Cohn because he was able to help me figure out a journey to uh, bring about justice. And that's what I was looking for. You say, what do whistleblowers look for? Absolutely correct. Justice. I wanted justice for those Indian children. I wanted justice for myself. And uh, 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 Stephen and I started this journey, thank God, along with Senator Grassley. And from that journey, uh, I was involved down in Minneapolis and developed this massive case, even though I was never given any work. It was theft from ground zero. I found stolen stuff uh, taken by Minneapolis contractors back to Minneapolis. I uh, got the biggest case in the office, worked it up, and uh, unfortunately, uh, it turned out that our own FBI personnel had taken uh, artifacts or relics. Mm. And I, of course, had done this huge case and knew the value of, of these artifacts and relics. And I remember talking to Stephen and saying, Stephen, what do I do? They just, they've just started accepting me back into the fold as an agent because of this massive case. And uh, this is a true moral quandary. And he said, uh, what would you do if you found stolen evidence? I'd say, I said, I'd tag it and bag it. He said, do it. And I did. We flew it back to Washington, D.C., and that started a massive case where they found stolen artifacts all over the United States right just to up to the Just to top. clarify, I just want to yeah. clarify, if you don't mind, Jane, you're talking about items that were taken from yeah. the scene of the terrorist attack on 9-11 at the World Trade Center that were taken by contractors who were working on the site and taken by FBI agents who were also working on the site who had been brought in from Minneapolis. And they took it. What were they planning to do with it? Sell it? Well, um, that's a good question. They did have a huge investigation and found stolen artifacts all over the United States. But the FBI agents, the one I found was sitting on a secretary's desk. Our evidence mm. response team had gone back to New York and had returned with all these artifacts that I knew from my case were uh, precious. And uh, that globe that they brought back and sat on that secretary's desk belonged to a victim uh, that was in one of the towers. So I knew that if somebody from our evidence response team would bring back a piece of evidence for a secretary, imagine what might have been stolen for a wife, a lover, a husband, 
you know, I, I just knew we had a terrible problem. And like I said, I told Stephen, you know, they've just, I've got the biggest case in the office. What do I do? And he said, you know, what would you do with stolen stuff? I said, tag it and bag it. And that's what he said, tag it and bag it. And I did. But and we went back to Washington. And of course, my career was over. That hmm. was it. And um, of course, it was very tough for me. It took me 10 years to recover because you of say the uh, moral Jay, when injury. You say your career, when you say your career yeah. was over, what does that mean? Well, the FBI immediately um, started termination proceedings and said, quote, she embarrassed the Bureau, unquote. And that's one uh, thing you never do, embarrass the Bureau. And I was taught that Steve, from day one. I'll, I'll yeah, bet Stephen. that's right. I'll, I'll, I'll bet that's yeah. right. Stephen wanted to jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say a couple things. So in whistleblowing, the bigger the scandal you expose, the more retaliation you face. If, if the listeners think that, oh, you are really right, they, you know, what, you shouldn't be retaliated against. It's the exact opposite. So in Jane's case, mm -hmm. she, and I saw the evidence, it, the case in North Dakota was shocking how mm -hmm. the FBI had turned their back on little children, two-year-olds, who had been victimized by outrageous sexual assaults. And in, in, on the Indian reservations, the FBI had jurisdiction over those crimes. So you can imagine a bureaucracy faced with evidence that they are complicit, that they've turned their backs on these victims. When one person like Jane stands up and says, look what's happening here. It was a massive backlash of massive. lies. And, and it, we fought that case for years. We had to take it to a jury trial. We had, had to take it to the Court of Appeals and get a reversal. They threw everything they had at Jane. The jury saw through it. The federal judge saw through it. It was a tremendous victory. But it's because she was right and she had this incredible evidence. And then as we're fighting that, just so you understand, she's calling artifacts. This was stolen property. The investigation she triggered which changed national policy and resulted in people being disciplined. But when you, if you read the report, and I think, Seth, you'll understand this, people stole bloody T-shirts. Mm. They stole burned American flags. There were literally tons of materials taken around the country for people for their souvenirs. Mm. And whether, whether they were going to sell it or what they're going to do with it, they clearly had converted it for personal use, that is theft. And then we learned there was this big conflict with the local uh, authorities in New York who were revolted that because <laughs> they wanted to return all this to the victims and to their families. Sure. Of course so they did. Jane of just course they did. The double whammo. Yeah. She got him so twice. Jane, Very rare. Yeah. So 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 Jane. So you so you won the North Dakota case. And that resulted in your being reinstated into the FBI. Were there any other implications, any other remedies in that case? So, so in the North Dakota case, they hadn't fired her. They just removed all her job duties. I see. So yeah, she I was see. given damages. The jury awarded more than the maximum amount 
permitted under law. They, mm. And so it was reduced to, I think, about 300000 which under law was the most she could get for the loss of her reputation, emotional distress. In the uh, Globe case, it started as wrongful discharge. And yeah. but by the time the case ended, which was like 10 years later, she had retired. So they cleaned up the record. They gave her some damages. But it, literally and this is also terrible with some of these retaliation cases, they literally go on for years and years mm -hmm. because the companies or the agencies have so much money to just keep poor. And believe me, Jane was public enemy number one. They never apologized to her even though she was absolutely right on two occasions. That's correct. Uh, the Bureau was very, very upset, as, as I was, considering the fact we had uh, executives from FBI headquarters who came into court and perjured themselves. Mm. I was so astounded. Um, and I said to Stephen, Stephen, go after him. Go after him. FBI agents can't lie on the stand. They just can't. And, uh, of course, we had bigger fish to fry. But uh, they also instated a policy after our whistleblowing that you can't steal things from crime scenes. Mm. Yeah, I said, wait a second. So, can I just you... say how astonishing, how astonishing yeah. that you need to have a policy saying you can't steal things from crime scenes. That is astonishing. And that's an amazing the... outcome, a successful outcome of your, your case. I want to – Tony has been – Tony has been amazingly yes. patient with us, and I, she's got a compelling story that she wants to tell us, and yes. I'm, I'm eager to hear it. Tony, I'm going to turn your microphone uh, back on. I had turned you off because there was a little bit of a, a, a reverb, so let, let me bring you into the conversation. So you were a contracting officer with the Army Corps of Engineers in Huntsville, Alabama, um, and let me just say, having overseen a, a very, very large procurement operation, there's they're risky operations. There's risk of theft. There's risk of dishonesty. There's risk of corruption, both in the in the contract making process, the contract uh, appeals process, application process. There's just there's risk because there's such a gigantic amount of money involved, um, and that must have been especially so at the Army Corps. So, tell us a little bit about what you found. And then tell us a little bit about how you went through the thought process of deciding that you were going to become a whistleblower. So first of all, thank you for, for having me. Um, it's just as uh, Stephen said, you don't start this journey thinking I'm going to be a whistleblower. For me, I was a contracting officer. I had taken an oath uh, as a civil servant and as a contracting officer. So therefore, I was just doing my job. I was a steward over the taxpayers' taxpayers dollars. And as you said, uh, even with you saying your connection to 9-11, of course, there were uh, multiple contracts, contractors, um, so many people, as you just stated, with kickbacks, um, contracts that were awarded. We could see that just in the news you know, the infamous uh, expensive hammer and toilets that, that, were, that were in the news. And so for me, um, I started um, with the Corps of Engineers out of high school as a high school student mm. during a summer job in Memphis, Tennessee. That's where I'm from, originally a native of. 
got a job as a college student, worked my way up through college, and we moved to Huntsville, Alabama, my husband and I. And I actually started in human resources, got a job as a contracting clerk, then became a contract specialist journeyman. And so therefore I worked my way up through that uh, to become eventually a supervisor contracting officer with an unlimited warrant secret clearance. And so I worked on many programs. Um, this just happened to be one of them, but I worked on ballistic missile defense. Uh, Huntsville Center is designated as the uh, center of expertise in many programs uh, for the Corps of Engineers because they can standardize the process around the country and really around the world. And so for the ranges program that I uh, blew the whistle on, um, they had the program manager who had been the program manager over that program for over 20 years. And so therefore you can imagine the type of ownership that he assumed, even though um, Congress and the federal acquisition uh, regulation, the FAR, which is kind of the contracting Bible, if you will, designates uh, specific roles. And they do that intentionally to keep uh, roles segmented so that there will not be that uh, uh, fraud uh, and people staying in their lanes. And so for the- You're talking about the, the FAR as the Federal Acquisition Regulations, which lays out an unbelievably yes. detailed set of rules governing how procurement has to proceed. And many, as you're, as you're saying, many of those rules are designed specifically for the purpose of pr protecting against corruption. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to. Absolutely. I, one of the things I do in these broadcasts is I translate government and other things for people. So a little bit of translation. Go ahead, Tony. Absolutely. That's okay. I love it. And I love the casual atmosphere that you've uh, oh, <laughs> laid out. <laughs> so as I said, that's, that's why we consider it the contracting Bible, if you will, because it's uh, very um, specific and explicit. And so therefore you have um, revenue people, you have contracting, and then you have um, program management. And so the contracting officer has been designated the only person who can obligate the, con uh, the government for contracting dollars. However, that program for ranges had not operated that way. And so when I became the new contracting officer and I took over that, that, um, that role, the rightfully so, and held the program um, in compliance to the regulations that we were subjected to, of course, that did not go, go over well. We had multiple contractors and multiple contracts. However, it seemed to be that the contracts were only going to the same people all of the time. And, um, and this is not even allegations because we had an internal audit, uh, uh, an AR-15-6 investigation was substantiated all of these claims, all of my claims. And so uh, the government estimates uh, that are supposed to be prepared independently, somehow the proposals would, were within cents of one another, uh, not mm. even dollars apart, literally cents. So the, um, the contractor somehow had inside knowledge uh, to what the government estimates were. They also had uh, contractors who um, are not supposed to do inherently government work. 
And so we actually had, while we had a government contract program manager, there was a contractor though, who really ran the program. And so mm. uh, when I yeah, took that's over a the big, program, that's a big course, no, that's a big no, no, that's supposed to be the dividing line absolutely. between contracting work and government work. So, so you found all these, corrupt activities, wrongful activities, maybe not criminal activities, but unethical under the, uh, the, the rules. So what did you do? Oop, Tony, do we still have you? I think we may have lost, uh, we may have lost Tony. Steve, Steve, maybe you can jump in and, and help us. What, what happened next? Well, Tony did what uh, you want federal employees to do, which was report these uh, crooks. And, and, and a lot of this is criminal activity. This is misappropriation of funds, contracting fraud. If it was in the private sector, she worked, say, for a contractor, she could file a False Claims Act case. Uh, but the government often tends to cover up their own problems. And she reported it through the chain and was subjected to cruel punishment at work. Her case established the national precedent for hostile work environment within the federal government. There had never been a case before. And if you read the Whistleblower Protection Act that covers federal employees, it outlines very specific types of misconduct that you can file a case under. And hostile work environment isn't one of them. But there is a doctrine of interfering with the terms and conditions of your employment. So when this case was argued, we argued that when you put someone under psychological pressure, when you humiliate them, when you essentially cause them that they can't even return to work because it's so emotionally upsetting, you've made it so hostile, they should be able to sue for hostile work environment. So no, she wasn't subject, say, to a sexual assault at the job, but she was subjected to whistleblower assault, the types of things they do to whistleblowers to punish them short of being fired. And then what happened when she didn't, she couldn't return to work because of the pressure, then they fired her for being AWOL. Uh, she was able to win her case. Years and years of fighting. Precedent was, was made and the case has now finally been resolved after over 10 years. Uh, but what she went through, no one should ever have to go through and uh, this is what whistleblowers face. Yeah, Tony, do we have you back? There you are. We had lost you for I just a minute. So, so. tell me, let, let me yeah. let me jump you. Uh, let let me uh, bring you back into the conversation to talk about your case. So, you and Jane have been through horrible, horrible work circumstances where you did you did what you thought was the right thing. You did what I think was the right thing, and you were punished for it. So what would you say to others, Tony, in who are finding themselves in this difficult situation, who are, they're scared, they need their jobs, as I'm sure you needed your job, Jane needed her job. Um, what would you say to them about taking that next step of, of 
stepping up with the information and saying, I've found something that's wrong here. What, what advice would you give them? Okay, I, I hope you can hear me. I apologize. I have an unstable connection. Great. That's okay. I, um, I had the other Cone brother, Michael Cone, <laughs> as my uh, attorney. And so, uh, and with support from the National Whistleblower Center. But what I would say is, it's always right to do right. You know, it's always good uh, and a good time to do right. I know the persecution can be severe retaliation uh, can be just unrelenting, uh, but you have to, and you also have to find a good support system. Uh, for me, um, I had my family, um, I'm, a, I'm also a minister, so I have my faith that I rely on, and I had my friends, and I had a great attorney in Michael Cone, a great advocate, who along with the Whistleblower Center, because when I, again, you don't start out thinking, oh, I'm gonna be a whistleblower. No, you're just doing your job. And so when I actually attended the very first whistleblower luncheon event, that let me be surrounded by other people who had endured some of the same things mm. that I had endured because I felt so alone. I did not realize, you know, I was just raised uh, in a good home and my parents taught me you follow the rules you'd be rewarded. So, you know, even into my adulthood, I just did not expect for people to behave this way. Oftentimes, these are uh, people that you have worked closely with. And as you know, you spend so much more time, usually at work, <laughs> a lot of times. So I was around these people. And uh, it just really was just, take. it just took me aback as to um, how they could, when the money was involved, when actually it was power uh, and, and greed. And so, uh, you know, you just have to find that good support system, a great attorney, <laughs> and, uh, and what Stephen has done in really coming in and specializing in whistleblowing has really made a difference around the world because so many people have found themselves in this situation and all we were doing was living life. You know, I was um, coming up. Right. Yes. And doing your job. You were living life and doing and doing your job. So I want to I want to yes. uh, come back to to Siri because you've set it up perfectly, Tony, to talk about the terrific work of the National Whistleblower uh, Center. Um, you both have, both you and Jane did a great job of, of describing the role that your attorneys played, but also that the center played. And I want to give Siri a chance since it is National Whistleblower Day and the National Whistleblower Center has played a leadership role in, in making that a reality. Um, so, uh, Siri, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the work of the center that you run. And and uh, in particular, you have some I would describe them as fairly pointed campaigns aimed at you can describe them as either being aimed at particular issues you could also describe them and this would be how i would describe them as being aimed at particular industries where you think whistleblowing is an especially important issue to be raised um tell us a little bit about some of the campaigns that the national whistleblower center has underway right now and what you're trying to accomplish 
Yeah. Well, thank you for for setting me up for an opportunity to share our work. I'm so proud of it. I really want to highlight some of the fundamental issues with whistleblowing that were noted today, which are that, you know, the more true the accusations are, the more they are hitting to the core of the corruption, the more pushback you're going to get. And that's where we have our campaigns targeting. So we have campaigns that are targeting industries that do not want to be regulated. And that does include the U.S. government, but it also includes companies that are impacting our climate, whether it be through pollution or through investment schemes that are giving investors the idea that are they're um, investing in a green future when in fact they're not. We are also looking at issues around the tech industry and making sure that there's some accountability there. So we see there's a lot of hostile work environment issues in the tech industry. And you know, with the NDAs and all of these different sort of contracts that they get their employees in, we're really trying to counter that. Um, and these are industries that are just asking for regulation and asking for accountability. And whistleblowers are reaching out to us and asking for our support. So we're doing everything we can to pitch in there. And we've made a lot of really good progress. Last year, we really helped to beef up the existing reward programs, the SEC program, the CFTC program, but establishing the rewards for the anti-money laundering program has also helped weaponize whistleblowers against Russian oligarchs and stopping the funds from going into Ukraine. Um, this explain has been what like- you mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but explain what you mean by the rewards program. What, what do you mean by that? So rewards programs are programs that are administrated by the United States federal government that allow whistleblowers to report anonymously to these federal agencies that have enforcement power. And then when their tips result in a successful case that is above a certain threshold right now, that threshold is a million dollars in most reward programs, they are eligible for a mandatory reward. In most programs, the standard mm. range is from 10 to 30%. So these programs were established by the Dodd-Frank Act as in a first step, but then they are building out into um, other, other agencies with other laws. So the anti-money laundering, law is under the Bank Secrecy Act and um, empowers the Treasury to give whistleblowers rewards. Um, and then the False Claims Act was kind of like the model for that, but that's a little bit different because that empowers individuals to come forward in civil actions on behalf of the government rather than through the government, through a federal agency's operations. Sort of, sort of a private attorney general kind of arrangement. What you're describing instead is a system whereby the whistleblower tips off the federal government and then the federal government takes it from there. They prosecute, investigate and prosecute the case rather than the individual taking on the case themselves. Exactly. Yes. I, I, I just so, want to jump I'm in sorry, here go ahead, for Steve. a second to talk about the whistleblower center. So last year, they led a massive nationwide campaign to get this very effective whistleblower law on money laundering and bank secrecy. It is so massive. It is transnational. It covers 14,000 banks. And the banks are the ones with the responsibility to police it and have tremendous liability. And we fought resistance and resistance and resistance. And Siri led the charge for, for a full year battling it out. And in the last bill passed by the last Congress, we got that put in after 200,000 you know, 200, people being contacted, at least 50,000 phone calls coming in. It was the largest grassroots wake up for a whistleblower law ever. 
We were told just three weeks before the law was passed, it would never go through. And it went through with a massive show of public support. To be honest, we have no idea how big it was. We know we shut down congressional offices. We shut down Twitters. And it was just pretty wild. So when you say focused and narrow, when the time came, the whistleblower center rose and really delivered. This law will be one of the most important whistleblower laws for the next 25 years. Well, that's fascinating. So let me let me ask, uh, I my experience with advocacy groups and also with lawyers is that you never feel like you're done. Uh, and so I, I've been I've been working in the labor and employment field of which I view whistleblower law as a part. Uh, I've been working in this field for 40 years, and I feel like I've been fighting a lot of the same battles for a very, very long time. So there is no such thing as uh, achieving the goal. The only thing you can achieve is progress. So uh, let me first ask, uh, I'm going to ask each of you, do you feel like we are making progress in the field of whistleblower law first? And second, what more needs to be done? Jane, let me start with you very quickly, and then I'm going to give Tony a chance, and then I'll give uh, uh, first then Siri and uh, Stephen a chance to wrap it up. But Jane, are we making Excellent. progress in whistleblower law, and what more needs to be done? Thank you, Seth. And very quickly, when when uh, Stephen started 40 years ago, his career in whistleblowing, all those names I mentioned to you earlier were utilized through his efforts of his law firm, Cone, Cone and Colapinto, Michael Cohn, David Colapinto, and through the National Whistleblower Center, which uh, 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 works hand in hand and caduce to Siri about that. Things have changed. Now they're called people of integrity, a person of integrity, mm. prophets of truth. So that's a massive change. And the understanding, the psychological, psychosocial aspects of what happens to whistleblowers has now come into view. So there's just been a sea change. And I put that directly into the lap of Cone, Cone, and Calapinto the National Whistleblower Center, they've established uh, the Whistleblower Network News. We're encompassing whistleblowers, we're uniting them, and National Whistleblower Day only furthers that aim. Whistleblowers are coming together, they're making a change. Uh, uh, Stephen, the National Whistleblower Center, works hand in hand with politicians to make these things happen. It's quite exciting because uh, things are happening. They are really happening. That's great, Jane. Uh, Tony, what do you think? Have we made progress on whistleblower law and what, what's left to be done? Okay, uh, I hope I'm not redundant. As you know, I'm, I'm having some internet <laughs> issues here, so I could not hear Jane. But one of the things I will say, uh, as Stephen said, in our case, we had a precedent um, setting rule established by the MSPB board that for the first time, whistleblowers uh, could uh, have protections from a hostile work environment. So I believe that that was very uh, much uh, progressive. Uh, we can build on that. Um, I believe also having independent reviews uh, for our agency that I was in at the time, they did not have anyone independently reviewing. So all of their EEO uh, and, and legal all reported to the command structure. 
And so when you have that, uh, those people who are now responsible for your performance appraisals, your promotions, uh, they tend to look out, um, look out for those interests rather than the employees. So uh, where those um, structures may still be in place in agencies, uh, I would highly recommend that they uh, implement some type of um, independent review, a third party where employees can go to seek counsel uh, who are mm. not able to, um, who are not, who do not have to go to um, EEO officers who are inside of the agency and inside um, of that command structure. So those would be some things. Again, we had a very um, uh, landmark decision in our case. It was uh, MSPB uh, precedent setting for the ho hostile work environment. So that was great, great progress. And and I really like the point that you said, um, you don't ever feel that, that it's over. All you can do is keep making progress, keep trying to help others and just um, and just hope that we can just continue to build to a more perfect union, as we say, for our, even for our nation. A absolutely right. Absolutely right. Okay, Siri, have you been, you're the, you're seemingly the newest uh, person in this world, at least among the, your, your uh, three colleagues here. Are you, uh, are, are we making progress and are what's left to be done? We've met incredible progress, and I really have to say, thanks to National Whistleblower Center and our legacy, we've changed the culture around whistleblowing, and our changing the culture is going global. We have connections all around the world where we're able to support and encourage people to figure out how to apply these values and principles of protecting and supporting whistleblowers locally. So um, Steve just came back from a trip in Mexico. We have partners there. Uh, Michael Cohn just went to Venezuela. We have partners there. We've done speeches in various countries in Asia, and we just want to continue to expand. We have connections in Africa. So this communication is happening globally, and that's going to shift work for people all around the world. The United States is a leader in this. We have the best programs, and our programs do have global reach. And you can read more about that in Steve's book, Rules for Whistleblowers, which is an absolutely fantastic book to pick up if you're curious. So um, our National Whistleblower Day celebration really does champion those ideas that have been talked about in Congress for 10 years under the leadership of Senator Grassley. Our Senate resolution was issued earlier this month for the 10th time in a row. That is incredible going from snitches and rats at the picnic to now um, regularly recognized demographic at Congress. But what still needs to change? I think we really need to look at the issues around hostile work environments in a way that everybody understands it impacts them. So one of the biggest questions I get from individuals is, what can I do to help support this cause? What can I do if I see someone who knows that they want to blow the whistle or something's going on? My answer is always that you might not necessarily know that someone has blown the whistle. You might not necessarily know what is going on behind the scenes. But when you see someone getting treated poorly at work, you have the power to decide whether you'll participate in the bullying or abstain from it. And usually this bullying happens because someone is speaking out about something that the person who's bullying them doesn't want to hear. It's never for a good reason. So we have to be hyper vigilant about how we interact with each other day to day. And that is something that 
no law can regulate. That is something that an individual can take responsibility for and help change the culture around safe workplaces. And unfortunately, what we're seeing in certain companies is that a hostile work environment is being normalized and therefore so is the silencing of whistleblowing. And when we can't have whistleblowing discussed in a very civil way, we cannot change the law. But thank God we've been able to make some really good headway in changing the law, which ultimately will help more whistleblowers come forward anonymously so they won't be faced with the same sort of retaliation. That's powerful, very powerful. So Stephen, you get to you get to bring us home. Uh, you've had 41 years in this business and uh, uh, I, I, my guess is you've seen some things that would uh, shock us all, but also you've seen some good things happen. So you or you started us out in this uh, broadcast by saying that you've seen a lot of progress. You started out litigating. There were no laws. And now there are seemingly dozens of laws, or at least a couple of dozen laws in this space. So I'm going to give you your answer on progress, although I want you to embellish it, add to it. But tell us what else you think needs to be done. Sure. So the biggest change has been proving that whistleblowing works. And now most of the federal law enforcement agencies, Department of Justice, SEC, Commodities, IRS, they acknowledge that whistleblowers are the number one source of all fraud detection. The value of whistleblowing has been objectively demonstrated through academic studies, but also through systemic analysis of actual civil and criminal prosecutions, how they came about, who gave the information, and guess what? It's whistleblowers 80%. This is why the laws have improved. But what we know, they've improved in some areas, but in others they lag far behind, especially in the environment, in occupational safety, and even for federal employees. This is a work in progress. What do I see in the future? I see a continuation of what I call trench warfare. When we try to get the AML fixed, anti-money laundering law, there some we go. Just basic rights that needed to be assert, affirmed, resistance. And we had to fight congressperson by congressperson to get that bill through. Why? The evidence was there, but the lobbying power of special interests is massive. And the only reason we can prevail and will prevail in the future is public support. That's where the whistleblower center comes in. It's about public support or else our great experiment in whistleblowing will come to an end. Well, that's uh, incredibly helpful, very hopeful. Uh, although a cautionary optimism, I think I hear from all of you. Uh, really appreciate your participating today and, and helping us to understand uh, this important issue of whistleblowing. Let me close where I opened. Happy National Whistleblower Day. I think it is a happy National Whistleblower Day, although there's more work to do. So thanks all. Really appreciate it. Now, wasn't that just terrific? Uh, four very courageous people fighting the good fight on behalf of workers and standing up to corporate power. Um, we're eager for you to help us tell these stories. If you have a story that we should tell on these blogcasts, we want you to send us a note. Follow us 
on social media, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on threads, on Instagram, send us a direct message, suggest a blogcast to us, and we want to take a look at it and see if we can put it together for you because we want to tell you stories that you want to hear and we're eager to have as many stories as we can possibly get about workers, worker power, and unions. Um, we also are eager to have you follow us on social media at Power at Work blog on Twitter, at Power at Work blog on Instagram. We have a Power at Work page on LinkedIn. Follow us there. We are at Power at Work blog on threads as well. Uh, that's a great way for you to keep up to speed with what we're doing here on the blog, but also it's a way for you to communicate with us. And we want to get, we want to hear from you. Tweet at us, thread at us, uh, comment on our posts, uh, send us direct messages. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and then you, most importantly, you can subscribe. Go to the blog. You're on the blog right now, but when you're done with this blogcast, go ahead and go to the subscribe page. It's actually on the home page. And subscribe. Give us your email address, and we will send you updates every week about what's on the blog. We'll send you a newsletter about what's on the blog. We will also, every Friday, send you the weekly download. We go out and collect a couple of dozen important stories, studies, articles, think pieces, research pieces from all over the web, from some sources you may not think of that we have been watching, monitoring closely throughout the course of our time operating this, uh, this uh, communications tool for you. Um, we gather them up. We put them into the weekly download. We'll deliver it to your inbox if you subscribe to the blog. And if you don't subscribe to the blog, you can find it on either our LinkedIn page or you can find it right here on the blog. But, but subscribe so that we can stay in touch with you. And also it's a way for us to keep you engaged with the blog. Thanks so much for watching today. We will see you right here on the blog again very soon.